was intentional the music there was was intentional and me the king of intentional radio confusion hi i'm jake clark and you're listening to the arts report on citr 101.9 fm broadcasting from the unceded musqueam territory of british columbia and i have our friend shivs our correspondent hi there and we also have a special guest phoning in uh to join us at the start of the program and that would be the playwright arthur holden whose show, The Past, is having its world premiere tonight at Studio 1398 on Granville Island. Hey, hey Arthur, how's it going? Very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the air. Hey, it's a pleasure. This is actually a kind of a first for us, because I don't think we've had a, a world premiere before Excellent. on the show. We Did we? I, I really don't think we did. And it's definitely a great uh, opportunity to have. And i got to ask you, before we kick this interview off, do you ever get any Salinger jokes kicked your way? No. Any, any oh, 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 yes, I do. Sorry, I didn't. I yes, uh, Holden Caulfield. Because everybody yeah. I know who has, has the name or surname Holden just has some kind of relationship with Catcher in the Rye because of that. I guess that's true. It's a great book. It's a, it is. It's a it's a classic piece of literature in the last century. Yeah. yeah. And the past is well. How would you describe it? Uh, it's a. A love story, a surprisingly funny love story between two aging alcoholics. Really? A lot goes wrong. Yeah, it's a, it's a sad subject. It's about alcoholism, about dependency, about the, the propensity of all of us to do really stupid and destructive things. And yet there is room in that, as in all things, I think, for irony and, uh, and amusement. That's interesting because, uh, well, uh, on another show I saw yesterday and that we're reviewing right now was Fool for Love by Sam Shepard. Yeah, there you go. Which is uh, also deals with some pretty dark uh, material in a love story and has a lot of funny yeah. bits to it. And that, that's that's interesting to me because it's sort of, uh, well, we're also talking about Fun Home, which mm-hmm. is also about, we seem to have a common theme of depression here. <laughs> and that's interesting because, uh, so I've read about uh, two of your other plays, uh, Ars yeah. Poetica and Battered, yes. both of which have this sort of theme of striving. Is that is that present here? Is that a personal focus for you? Yes, it is, and I would say more generally that a lot of drama, a lot of fiction, builds around striving. I think the idea of wanting something very passionately leads naturally to storytelling, because the more passionate our desires, the harder we'll work and the um, the more clever we'll be and try to get over the obstacles that prevent us from reaching our goals. And the more insane things the characters can do. Quite right. The more exciting it is to watch. Uh, that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. 
I, I hope so. I'm interested in this because um, I, I am personally very interested in sort of the way uh, addiction is handled, and especially in relation to mental illness, because I think those are two topics that, especially in the um, in the art world and in the related spheres, that are sort of tied in inexorably. Yep. With output there, and I, I gotta ask, what brought you to this particular topic? What brought you to AA? Well, I'm really glad you mentioned my previous play, Battered Jake, because it's a play that has a surprising amount of humor on the subject of intimate violence. Yeah, and that's... Um, and that, I, that play, which I'm quite proud of, mostly got excellent reactions. But occasionally somebody would say, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong about presenting a, a story of human weakness, and specifically a story of violence, in which we laugh. And I thought, laughter is our way of getting at truth. So I took that as a challenge, and I wrote a story in which the violence that emerges is considerably more horrible than what's in Battered, because I wanted to see what do we do, how does judgment affect us as we get closer and closer to what is darkest and most destructive in us, and can we still find irony? And I I hope... I've provided answers to those questions that will surprise and intrigue you. Martin McDonough walks that line a lot, too. Yes, he does. So, exactly. Like wow. In, By the way, I love being mentioned in the same general sentences as Sam Shepard and Martin McDonough. Thank you very much for that. Hey, it's a pleasure. I guess I guess they all they all go back to Sam Beckett, really, when you think about yes, it. Yes, very is, true. Has that attachment to UBC. We have our own weird sort of relationship with Beckett, and I'm... Well, I'm going to say this later, but I'm a man of four Sams. Beckett, <laughs> Shepard, Fuller, and Johnson. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, it should be three because Johnson doesn't really fit. And with that, like Shepard, Fuller, they were, they were all more athletic, but it was right. just sort of the depression is sort of the common root with that, too. And they're all pretty funny in their way, John, Sam Johnson in particular. <laughs> that the, he wrote the best dictionary this side of Ambrose Bierce. That's right. I, now, I, I got to say, because you've had a really prolific body of work. As uh, um, I'm old, that happened. In, if, yeah, but like seriously, man, you got an interesting IMDb page there. Like there were some yeah. credits that I found really interesting. Like the particular one is uh, a writer on a documentary called Philosopher Stoned. A uh, writer and star. Really? Yeah. No. Yes, it was that one that we made that 15 years ago uh, when my teenage son, who is now a lawyer, was discovering the joys of cannabis. The son who um, helped you with a few details on Battered, right? That's right. So he, um, he, you know, he was a teenager. He was nothing, uh, you know, nothing horrible happening, but he was discovering cannabis, and it was affecting his mother and me. And so a filmmaker and I got together and did a little documentary on what happens to a middle-aged guy who smokes up for the first time in a decade. And that's a funny film. Hilarity ensues. Yeah, that up now. It seems kind of. That's I got. So, but in light of that, I got to yeah. ask: What is the weirdest capacity you've ever filled in a production? Uh, like, what's the most sort of out there contribution you've made to a work of art? I suppose uh, participating in uh, simulated softcore pornography for a dreadful comedy that no one will ever see. But oh that, that wasn't really out there. It was just sort of not terribly clever. Not, not in your comfort zone? Well, I wasn't. It was just it was very tough on the young woman who had to pretend to be a prostitute. Uh, so it was depressing and odd. And a lot of the people involved in the production died young. I can't believe I'm telling you. That's a morbid story. But no, that, that was just sad. I guess the, the weirdest thing I ever did was get dressed up as an egg for a barbecue chicken commercial. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, a friend of mine um, is in advertising, and he once wrote copy, which is a bizarre instance of life imitating Frasier and that he had to write two nuts talking to each other. <laughs> I love it. it. It never got made, but that was, uh, that was one point where I'm like, yeah. By the way, one thing that is interesting is all you have to work with right now is my voice. And my, by far my most distinguished credit is that I am the voice of Mr. Ratburn in a cartoon called Arthur. Really? Yes, I am. Have you done your homework, Jake? Oh, is that cake? (laughs) (laughs) 
I didn't know how to work that one in exactly. Yeah, well... I, I, I was trying to figure out how the trajectory went from the past to children's animation, and I'm thinking, hmm... Yeah, tricky. Alcoholism and, and PBS feel-good cartoons for kids don't really go super together. Well, the former usually occurs behind the scenes of the latter, so... <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, wow. I've seen Death to Smoochie. Yeah, know. okay, fair enough. So are you trying to tell me children's animation isn't always in the back of everyone's minds? Great question. Maybe it is. Maybe maybe the, the deeper truths that emerge in the cartoon world are with us always. That's a, very, that's a deep insight. Call that the Adventure Time principle. Yeah. I'm a Steven Universe fan. I've never actually seen Steven Universe. You have lost out on so much in your life. I'm aware of that before cartoons. (laughs) And so this is probably maybe just a parting question, and this is something that I I wasn't sure if I should ask this, but considering you've done a lot, you've filled a lot of capacities, Mm -hmm. and that requires a consistent work ethic. It requires a lot of devotion to a very stressful field. And I want to say, I'm assuming based on the past that your method of decompression isn't necessarily taking a drink. So I oh, want to yeah, know, correct. Yeah. how do you make it, how do you kind of make it feel like your head's less likely to explode? Because running this show alone has sometimes made me feel like I'm sticking my head in a vice. Well, I, um, I have a particular blessing to share with you. I am married to a licensed massage therapist. That's a terrific situation. Yeah. So yeah, there decom- was a lot of nodding here that you couldn't see. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So, uh, and who's also a novelist? If you go on Google and look up, up my name, Arthur Holden, you'll see my wife's name, Claire Holden Rothman. She's a distinguished novelist and and also a licensed Shiatsu therapist. Those two probably don't go together super often, but when they do, the results are mind-blowingly beautiful. Yeah. Claire Holden Rothman. Sounds like she could be a mountaineer. Yes, she could be anything. She's also, a, she used to be a, a prize-winning long-distance runner. She is uh, achievement personified. That's that's very impressive. Yeah, she's also a deeply good human being. And, and I miss her. I'm in Vancouver. Aww. And yeah. while, while we're searching your name, though, we'll probably find the um, the performance of the past. Yes, and I hope you will. just to be clear, that is at 1398 Cartwright on Granville Island, actually. Correct. Correct. Tickets are cheap. $15 tonight. It's opening night. Students of UBC, members of the Vancouver community, lovers of theater, come see the show. I'd love to meet you. And if you hate it, I'll give you a refund. <laughs> really? You're yeah, unless I give you, unless you have free tickets, in which case, you know, you can just hit me. <laughs> Do the full George Clooney there. He's uh, he's he offers to refund the ticket price of anyone who's ever seen Batman and Robin. Wow, yeah, really? Apparently, no one's taken up on it, but I've seen Batman and Robin. I didn't pay to see it, but I would try to. T- <laughs> <laughs> well, really fair cool. enough. It Fifteen dollars is pretty cheap. Is that just for the opening night? Yes, but it's 20 regularly. This is, a, this is a new company, and I think they're trying to encourage people to come. It's called the Speed Bump Company. It's run by Marco and Lori Holbein, who are beautiful people, committed to the arts, generous, wonderful, talented artists. I think they're, they've set the ticket prices in a way that makes the show attractive, makes it worth coming to Granville Island to see, quite apart from the fact that I, I think it's a great show. Well, I just, I, any chance to get down to Granville Island, but I'm looking forward to this. Well, I look forward to meeting you, because, Jake, you are going to be there tonight. (laughs) I'll see you there. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you both. It's our pleasure. Have a great Uh, one. Have a good night. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. I I am legitimately looking forward to that. Yeah. You know, it's weird, because I didn't plan the common thread of these shows. Is the PSA on? No, it's not on. Okay. I haven't played it yet. We're, We're still on the air. I'm trying to seek our way into the PSA because my manual coordination skills are not terrific. But as I'm currently selecting them from the new timely PSAs, I'm trying to figure out between John Craven Jones or uh, the the Boulderized Bitch Tapes content warning. Uh, When you say we're on air, do you mean we're on air? Because I can't hear us. We are currently live, yes. I see. Already. I I might check to see if your headphones are plugged in there Mm -hmm. because I take a pair of headphones from here. Digressions aside, I'm I am looking forward to that because that's 
I do like it when, you know, addiction is, is discussed in this way. Like, that's part of the reason I think Infinite Jest really deserves, well, it's got a lot of acclaim, but a lot of that's for the fact that you could stop a door with it. Like, there's works that shed light on that, and I think those are very relevant. What about you? You ever get that sort of impression about it? Is there ever a story that you've seen that's sort of one of those addiction stories, like Lost Weekend or something, Days of Wine and Roses? I don't know. I'm not much for addiction stories, I guess. I I do I do like stories about accurate representations of mental mental disorders though. Ah, like like what? Like what specifically? Well, mm. we're going to talk about Fun Home in a minute. That one deals yeah. with Well, that one deals with depression, I guess. In ways, sort of in a indirect way because it's not the protagonist. Yeah, it's and well, we got to talk about that. Mm-hmm. After this PSA break, I think that was pretty smooth. Yeah. Mint Records and CITR and Discorder present Edmonton's indie psych favorite, Faith Healer. It's their first time in Vancouver, so let's show some Van City love on Saturday, March 3rd at the Astoria with special guests, local fuzz poppers Supermoon and Ellen Noon from Victoria. Tired of the gender binary, gender policing, or just want to speak your truth? Join CITR's Gender Empowerment Collective. This group of radio makers is all about centering the voices, issues, concerns, and experiences of women-identified, transgender, intersex, two-spirit, genderqueer, gender nonconforming, non-binary, and gender-fluid folks and allies. Anyone can join, no experience necessary. Like the Gender Empowerment Collective on Facebook or email volunteer at citr.ca. Our show, Intersections, airs Thursdays from 4 to 5 and features music, interviews, events, news, commentary, basically anything we care to talk about. See you then. I thought that one fits in pretty well with the seed we were going for. Mm-hmm. We are we are live right now, by the way. If if you can't, I don't know if we can't hear our voices. That's weird. That should be that should be audible. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about fun home. Yes, let's. Um. Well, so this was also at Gravenville Island Stage. This one was um produced by the Arts Club Company. And quite frankly, let me tell you first impressions. So um, for those of you that don't know what Fun Home is, it was, um, it's a actually originally a graphic memoir, which is a graphic novel that is a memoir by Alison Bechdel, who if her last name sounds familiar, it should, it's from the Bechdel test. Uh, anyway, so in order to show a memoir in a musical, which I thought was really interesting. They had three characters playing her at different ages. And so who I refer to as small or kid Allison, she comes up on stage, she has the first singing note, I would say. And oh my God, her voice. For a second, and I've listened to the Broadway recording a lot, I genuinely thought this was the Broadway cast. I knew it wasn't, but I genuinely thought so for just that second. It was just so beautifully done. And the child actor was so good. I think it's one, not to discredit anyone's work, I think it's one thing to be a screen child actor, but another thing to be a theater child actor, where you have to hit it again and again, and that to in a musical, like... She was so on point. Honestly, everything about this production was just so professional and so impressive, especially the just the set and the stage and the way the props moved. It was just beautiful. And, okay, so it's a story that's got to convey several different timelines because the story mm-hmm. itself is split between, well, there's her reflection, but when do you say most of the story takes place? 70s. Okay, so basically what happens is, if we're talking about the three Allisons, what happens is the adult Allison who is actually um, writing the cartoons, that's who we're introduced to. And she's perpetually present on the stage. So you can see her as some, uh, some kind of grounding to how we see the story. So the time jumps don't feel too choppy, which I thought was a really smart idea. Really? It also didn't feel like she was useless. She was reacting to what was happening on stage. And you could see her like, you could see the 
artistic um, processing of how she's remembering these things, you know, that wasn't in the novel per se, because she, you see her like trying out different captions and just reliving oh, these experiences. Yeah. Because the novel doesn't, isn't really, it is about her to a degree, mm-hmm. but it's about her in relation to her father. Yeah. And that's what interests me because uh, Bruce Bechtel is one of those characters mm-hmm. where, uh, aside from probably the core element of the character, which is repressed homosexuality, mm-hmm. that's not really a spoiler. That's uh, no. I think I think if I'm not wrong, within the first five minutes of the play, you hear, "My father was gay, and he committed suicide, and I am also gay, and I became a cartoonist." It's something along the lines of that. Yeah, I, I could make a joke about the which life decision was better, but uh, mm. no, no. Even not the I'm best not, one, no. No, that would be in horrible taste. Um, but Bruce Bechtel, for me anyway, because I've mm-hmm. read the book. I love, yeah. I love, I love Fun Home. It's a great. It's probably my favorite graphic novel. Like I, my, I, I, honestly, up until last year, I probably would have said Watchmen. But um, oh yeah, I still, I, I, I remember I bought Fun Home. I didn't have to read it for a syllabus. Mm-hmm. I read the whole thing through and about. Uh, uh, two weeks, yeah. a little bit. It's not a long book, but I was like reading syllabus books on top of that. So, mm-hmm. but it's um, like Bruce Bechtel. The, th- the thing that scared me a little bit was that again, barring the sexuality, which is the core issue. So mm-hmm. maybe it's not a huge similarity, but it was a character where that seemed. You ever see, read something and you see someone who reminds you so much of yourself, you're a little frightened. Mm-hmm. What was that for you? Um, is that ever? Can't think of something on the top of my head. I I think what's terrifying about that is if that person is somewhat negatively, like, what do you call it, perceived, it makes you wonder about how people look at you. Well, with Bruce Bechtel, like, he's a complicated character. You want to mm-hmm. sort of share that with him? Yeah. Okay, so Bruce Bechtel, this is uh, Allison's father. And the opening number itself talks about how he has this idea of a picture-perfect family, you know, and how everything has to be polished and to this degree that it's artificial. And we do find out that he is a gay man. He has been cheating on his wife. His wife is aware of this. But I think what's most unsettling is the fact that who he chooses to cheat with is these underage uh, kids. Oh. They're they're teenagers. Yeah, yeah I remember. And One was it, a babysitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what's worse is they're not only not only is it the age gap, it's also a power dynamic because some of them are his students. He's an English professor. Oh, good lord! The call me by your name conversation. Yeah, and it's it's just, it's not just the fact that it's, actually this is a lot less ambiguous than that. Mm, the book is definitely a bit more ambiguous than the musical is. For example, the musical just straight up says he's gay. And that this relationship with Roy is, like, very solidified and the wife is very much aware of it. Whereas I felt in the book it was definitely more ambiguous and played around. There's this idea that the father might be bi. There's this idea that when, uh, spoiler alert, when he dies at the end of the play, it's maybe because an accident or maybe it's suicide because he gets hit by a truck. But in the musical, it's just very obviously uh, portrayed as suicide. Yeah, and the thing about reading the book is that I figured that that ambiguity is kind of core to it because mm-hmm. uh, that character, like from the details shared, like I would think accident if but for the detail about his sexuality again and about that particular situation. Well, then there's why then too. Mm-hmm. But it, if that's disambiguated and that's a different, slightly different characterization, actually not by much though. I think it's. Um, I did think about this, and I think it's because the book, the way it ties in into the ending is through metaphor. And I don't think the musical hands, handles it in that manner. Uh, the the death of the father is sort of the anchoring climax there. And Allison's, as, as Allison is reimagining all of this, sh- she's sort of trying to deal with how, as she was leaping into her life, he died. And it's this guilt that surrounds a death of suicide. Just... Why wasn't I there? Why didn't I do more? You know, and I think that that that's what ties into the most beautiful song of this entire show. I think was Telephone Wire, where, and this is where it sort of 
I won't say breaks the fourth wall, but it does something very interesting. So far, we've been seeing uh, big Allison or adult Allison looking at small and teenager Allison. But in this one scene where they go for a drive, instead of teenager Allison going with the father as it should be, adult Allison gets recognized by Bruce Bechdel. He just looks at her and he's like, you want to go for a drive? And she's amazed that he can see her, you know? And she he takes this uh, uh, drive with her. And it's this drive that is cha- it's It's a changed experience because teenage An- Allison was mostly concerned about how she's gay and he's gay and they won't talk about it. But adult Allison is concerned about this being the last conversation they ever have. And it's interesting how they work that because in the book, I think if you remember, there's a short scene where he takes her to the theater yeah, and, and that's he, that's, they see coal miner's is. daughter, and that's when he tells her, mm-hmm. you know, I want to be a girl when I was younger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is um, this is the part. Uh, this is the part that they adapt into driving. I think to better accommodate in a set. Interesting. That's um, huh? Because okay, so yeah, and that that's a very that that is that I think that moment's the climax of the book. Yeah. Is that drive, because that's the moment of least ambiguity Mm -hmm. in the book. It's a moment where they don't quite reach the truth, but they get as close to it as you can. Yeah, I think a lot about the ending of the book and the musical is surrounding this idea of when there's a death by suicide, you never really have an answer. Well, uh, that depends on, you know, if there's a note. Yeah, And that's that's another reason there's no note, and especially, Mm -hmm. you know, with George Carlin's joke, you know, writer, it's I can't believe writers can manage to commit suicide. They spend all the time working on the note, and by the time they're done that, they got a book and they got a reason to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily true over the course of various instances. No. You know, I had to like, look up um, musicians who, well, our, our mutual mm-hmm. friend Jessica, she's doing some work on um, a show, and I uh, was asking about musicians that killed themselves for mm-hmm. a line, and I had to think about that, and I thought about that, like Vic Chestnut. Uh, killed himself because he his he was American healthcare system. He was quadriplegic, mm-hmm. medical bills mounting into fifty grand a year, and he didn't want to drive his family into poverty. Uh, Ian Curtis uh, from Joy Division. His well, that was partially. I don't want to say it was his fault, but he, basically, he cheated on his wife. She left. He had a mental breakdown and uh, watched Stryzek on TV. Put on put Iggy Pop's idiot on the turntable. Drank a fifth of whiskey and hanged himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith Emerson from Emerson Lake and Palmer. He killed himself because he couldn't play anymore. He had arthritis in his hands and he figured he was of no good to anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elliot Smith stabbed himself, which is not a good way to go. You know, it's it's. And I, like thinking about that alone, like these things are known. Like, but then Donny Hathaway jumped out a window, and they're not sure if it was suicide because he didn't leave a note. He just went out a window at the age of thirty-three. He was depressed before that, though. And that's another thing too about Fun Home is that Bruce Bechtel is such this such a locked-up character. It's hard to tell exactly the extent of what he's experiencing. Yeah, and there's there's definitely this ambiguity about whether it was premeditated. Like, there's also so many different kinds of suicides. Oh, yeah. Some are accidental, some are impulsive, and some are premeditated. And there's even more, I'm sure, that I'm not aware of. But, yeah, there's definitely a lot of ambiguity there, and I think... It works well with the play and it works well as a memoir because without the presence of a note, but honestly, even with the presence of a note, there's so many questions left behind. Well, yeah. I mean, and people try to, well, 12 reasons why. 12 reasons why? 13 reasons why. 13 reasons why. Lucky 13. That's a show predicated on the understanding that not only can you explain suicide, but you can accredit it, Mm. which is, I think, in kind of dangerous way to look at it. But it is, I think, a better way to look at suicide than, oh, that person just off themselves. Well, sucks to be them. Because mm. I think that even even depressed people are not necessarily – even horribly depressed people are not necessarily suicidal. Like, there's a fundamental – Oh, no, definitely. There's, like there, – mm-hmm. yes, suicidal tendency can be part of depression, but it's not really a way to measure depression. You could be horribly depressed and that – could not, that may not be a place you go. Well, and I think, too, it builds. Like, there's a mm-hmm. certain degree about that. And with something like Fun Home, where you're, it is a history. It's it, – well, is it a history or 
the thing about Fun Home is that it's a book, it's a graphic novel about literature in a lot of ways. Because there's not only... The, yeah, there's a lot of literary illusions, which is why I'm not surprised you like it. I, I kind of <laughs> love that. Well, like, so Bruce Bechtel is steeped in what we would call the great books. Modernist mm, literary tradition. Yeah. Uh, Hemingway, Fitzgerald's favorite books, The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, by contrast, Allison identifies with... Well, she does identify with... Um, oh, not, not Camille. Um, no, damn... Uh, but a, a lot of what would be at the time, it, the, it, the writer I'm thinking of, Claudette, no, no, a French French female writer, starts with a C. I don't Colette, have... okay. I think. Colette, I, th- I think. I think I, I, I'll check this. I'll check this Jake, afterwards. Jake, I honestly myself. do not have the vast expanse of knowledge that you do. I just don't. You know, people telling me that is the reason I do this show. <laughs> <laughs> but and uh, Allison's are to identify with what's like the, the burgeoning sort of feminist literature mm-hmm. at the time. And that's especially interesting considering... Oh, that... oh, Colette. Yeah, yes. Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay, so it was Colette. Yes, it was her. Because yes. she's definitely mentioned in the uh, musical where it's like, uh, where Joan says, Dude, did he know you were gay? Like, did he have something to do with this by giving you this novel? <laughs> well, there's the importance of being earnest, too. They bring that mm-hmm. up. Do they bring that up in the play? I don't quite recall. It definitely doesn't have nearly as many literary illusions as the book does. Because all those things, like uh, the importance of being earnest, well, the importance of being earnest, uh, and that was first staged. Mm-hmm. Um, Oscar Wilde couldn't attend the premiere because he was in Reading Gale. Jail. He was in jail for being gay. Uh, also, another thing I want to share about this. Yes, horribly unjust, but he could have gotten out of it if he knew how the legal system worked or cared. But his response to being accused of being gay was to try and tell people who would have spared no mercy. Like, those same people exist mm-hmm. today, but at the time, it was only those people he'd have been dealing with. And his attempt to do that was to say, I'm gay, and let me be gay, a group of people that is not going to work on. Yeah. And he had an out, and he didn't do it. So, in and of itself, I'm not saying he necessarily should have, but, but he could have, mm-hmm. is, is the sad part about that. But he he gave such an impassioned oratory, but it didn't work, because that's not how the legal system worked well, at the time. I don't know if it was meant to work. I don't think Oscar Wilde martyred himself for his mm-hmm. sexuality. I, I don't think he was that public spirited. I also don't think. I also think, for the record, that if uh, Oscar Wilde had more brains than to assume that would have, wor- at the time, mm-hmm. I, I cannot assume that the future would have looked optimistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't look optimistic to Alan Turing, and that was sixty years later. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Did you watch the Imitation Game? I did. Yes. Yeah. I I liked it. I, f- I find the story of Alan Turing interesting. I actually don't think Alan Turing killed himself, though. I have no idea about the actual history of it, but I do love Benedict Cumberbatch. Basically, Turing died of cyanide poisoning, and mm-hmm. the thing was, yes, he could have killed himself, but he was also trying to use cyanide to silver plate cutlery. Mm. Uh, cyanide, you use it to clean gold. It's like it's it's a cleaning agent, well used in metal treatment, but uh, he also couldn't leave its house. So, uh, yeah, experimenting with cyanide in your living space, probably not a great idea. Mm-hmm. What can I say, uh... He was, he was a brilliant man, and we owe a lot of the technology we're using right now to him. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a bad move. Yes, We got off track, didn't we? Yeah, we really did. Speaking of, I'm going to bring it around. Speaking of imbe- ambiguous deaths by suicide, um, I think it's interesting how Allison, I, if I remember correctly of the book and in the musical, she talks about how he didn't move. He didn't, you know, go away from the path of the tr- uh, truck. Which is interesting to me because why would she have known that? I don't think maybe her mother was there to witness it. Like, we never get an answer for how she knows he was standing there. Like, this is the way she describes it, him just standing there. But I don't think there's any... She couldn't have reasonably observed it. She says, as I remember it in the book, she describes him crossing the road with a bunch of shrub on his Mm -hmm. side. And then he might have recoiled like he saw a snake. He might have either jumped in the way of the truck... Or jumped out of the way of a snake and hit the truck. Yeah. That's distinctly how I remember it being in the book. Mm -hmm. That isn't the way it's in the musical, but even then, just who was observing him walk? Because Allison wasn't there. I guess it might have had to have been the guy who drove the truck. Yeah. Saw him jump out. 
Uh, like, oh, could have seen a snake. Could have been intentional. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That guy's driving a truck. Like, if he saw him do whatever he was doing, it would have slowed down the truck. Yeah, I think with, like, memoirs and just fiction that might even, um, what do you call it, focus on construction of memory. It's just very interesting oh, yeah. and important to take into consideration whose perspective we were being told the story by. Well, Fun Home is really concerned with narrative because it's, it's yeah. a family tragicomic mm-hmm. is what the thing is called. And that's it's, Bechdel was really aware of form. I haven't actually read anything, any of her other graphic novels. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is a common theme throughout her work, but it's mm-hmm. very pervasive in Fun Home and it's yeah. very effective. Especially when you come out of it, because it doesn't seem that abstract. It seems to flow with the story. Mm-hmm. But you do realize that you've just jumped around a series of things that are connected by narrative. And mm-hmm. these events would be random otherwise. That is very true. There's also a lot of tonal shifts. Yeah. Because we have this childhood of repression where Allison isn't allowed to express herself. And that's directly juxtaposed by her teenage life, where she's just gotten together with her new girlfriend, Joan, and she's discovering her sexuality. And you can just see the very, just the very distinct differences between those two lives that she's leading. Oh, yeah. And that, well, there's, it's, it's, it is for her coming of age Mm -hmm. story. Yeah. Coming of age stories are probably my favorite variety of story. And I guess the thing that bothered me the most about Bruce Bechtel was that he is not a good father. Mm. He's not, he, he tries to be, he has his moments, but on the whole, like, I don't know about the state of Alison Bechtel's family, but she's got two brothers. I don't know if either of them turned out in a particularly good place after this, but she yeah. managed to get a very comprehensive work of fiction out of the pain that man caused her mm-hmm. to a degree. And like I, I don't mean to slag on a dead man, but that's that's I only know him through the book. Yeah. He does not see like he seems like he was certainly he wasn't a terrible father. Like we're gonna talk about fool for love next. You wanna mm-hmm. talk about terrible fathers, Sam Shepard's got you covered. And un, and like Alison Bechtel, those are drawn from life. Um I, Yeah, I think what's so beautiful about Bruce is in a very beautiful in a bad way, is that he's a complicated, sympathetic character. That you really don't want to like. Like, I don't like Bruce. He is an unlikable character. But he is a sympathetic character, which makes him a great character, but really makes you confused about your feelings towards him. Because for me, personally, um, not the father aspect. Like, obviously that's bad in itself. But for me, personally, what hits uh, is just this idea of him sleeping with someone who's underage. That's what hits for me, and that's what makes him very just hard to like for me. Because I feel like he, most of his actions of not being a good father are intertwined with this internalized homophobia. He would be a very different character if he wasn't gay. He well, he would, because, well, it'd be less, he'd be just kind of a... He, it would be less explicable. There he'd would just be an be antagonist, than... just plain and simple. Well, and with him, too, I mean, he's... And emotionally, in the, he's obviously he's repressed homosexual, but also, yeah. even if he was straight, he'd be horribly emotionally repressed, mm-hmm. as many people in his generation and situation are. Like he'd be greatest generation, wouldn't he? Or he would be right after, because um, he's he, when was he in the army? Fifties. Um, but like that's a generation of people. Like until the baby boomers, really, you never had a generation of people in. The, well, as far as our cultural zeitgeist goes, that were, you know, encouraged to be emotional because most of the time you just, well, war, depression. Yeah. Those aren't really times when that's the, the name of the game. And that in turn was a common criticism of a lot of what's come about because there is less hardship. Mm-hmm. And that in turn, I, I, you could, I, I guess, try to apply that to Allison's relationship with her father, but that seems like a false equivalency. Honestly, I think before we end, we should talk about the title itself. Yes, we should. Especially because we were talking about the past and about humor related to these darker topics. Yeah. yeah. So, Fun Home is basically an abbreviation of Funeral Home. And I think it's so interesting the way they play with that. And it's emphasized in the musical more than it is in the book because there's this entire uh, sequence, uh, song sequence, that is about these kids uh, making this commercial 
about uh, the funeral home and calling it Fun Home in this commercial. Now, it's not... It, I'm pretty sure that was never uh, publicized or, like, I'm sure Bruce didn't actually let that air. But it was very interesting to watch it because if you see that from someone who's an adult in the funeral industry, it would be seen as incredibly insensitive. But it is, it's interesting to see how the children grow up with this. And it's it just goes like, come to the fun home. You know, it's like, it really capitalizes on death, but at the same time, these are children you're hearing it Well, from. I kind of want to point out that I think the funeral industry is probably the most full of shit industry in the yeah. world. And I'm a person who works in public radio. Like, <laughs> I, I um, like that's one, another reason why I really sh- didn't know if I would like Bruce Bechtel was because I find his profession kind of inherently suspect. Yeah. I find it really, really alarming and deeply unsettling to me that you can make a surprisingly large amount of money, probably more money than you did as a school teacher, by mm. preying on people's grief. And the fact that if you go through any small town in southwestern Ontario, you will see a funeral home and a church. And I get why there's a church there, but I cannot, for the life of me, get why a funeral home's there, except for the fact that it's, oh, this is a good business decision. Because mm-hmm. I cannot, I cannot see why that, is, if you're in the funeral industry, well, well, actually, you know what? I'm not necessarily sorry about this. I just, I often feel like when you're talking about burial, when you're talking about your loved ones, mm-hmm. you have to do that. But God damn, I resent the fact that that's a money-making field. Honestly, I really do. yeah, that seems like something that should just be a public service. And I think the funeral home should be the house of the guy in the neighborhood who has the most shovels. Yeah. Hey, Earl, you doing anything this afternoon? No? Okay. Bring the shovels. We're going to put our uncle in the ground and have a hoot nanny. See, I do appreciate this idea of if you're if you don't want to be if you don't want to face the death of a loved one and just see them in that manner, you give that to, you have the opportunity to let someone else uh, perform those services, but it's just the idea of how they, you know, use it. I'm actually in a course, um, it's Psych 208, and it's Dying and Death in Canada, and we talk about this. Is it different here? Um, death, death is the is, one. Death, death is very cultural, are, death, actually. Uh, I, I mean, death I happens make a joke everywhere. About death and birth being the only universal experiences. Th- that is very true, but the way it's handled, grief, true. burial yeah. methods. Okay, that is true. It is so different. Just the way death is viewed. Whether it's an end, whether it's a beginning, what happens after, there's so many differences. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. So it, it is death and dying. The, our uh, textbook specifically is death and dying in Canada as to not give this idea that the Western way to go through things is a universalized way to go through things. Huh. Um, but what was my point, Jake? About fun home? Uh about the, yeah, it's talking well, about funeral industries, the... and so our professor, who is amazing, by the way, he ta- he was talking to us about how when he was going through his father's funeral, he was uh, and he went to the funeral house, he he was given this album of keepsakes that you could potentially get, and he finds them tacky in the first place. But when he rejected them, he, they were like, "Oh, just take it, just in case you want to." It's just this idea of like, you know, the way. Um, the customer service sales voice, you know, people have that retail voice. Yes, and it's I do. Used... I've used it a few times. Yeah, and the fact that it's used in a funeral home context is just very disturbing. The fact that they're giving out a gift bag with a corpse is disgusting. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, that went to place. Anyway, Fun Home was was terrific. It was beautiful. It was worth watching. It's just... It's very interesting from the funeral home industry, the commercialization of it, to just being gay in two different generations, to just having a great, uh, to just listening to a great memoir, just a beautiful musical. You know, I gotta say this. Dying is one thing that is the only thing that, you know, you can truly say if you wait long enough, it'll come around. Mm. That's actually interesting. In our textbook, there's this argument some scientists make about whether death is actually needed and natural end to life. What? Or, yeah, because if you think about it, um, can't remember. I think it's C-Sense. It's this idea of how your body is constantly growing older. But yep. if you were perpetually healthy, were you, would you actually die? Uh, well, that's probably a question for someone who does better cardio than me. <laughs> <laughs> We'll leave you guys with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys in the natural sciences, uh, please try and work that out. 
I need something to kind of counterbalance my drinking. Okay, so um, we'll have a brief PSA break, and when we return, we will talk about the Shop Theater's production of Sam Shepard's Fool for Love. LGBTQ2I Night is a positive space for folks to learn about bike maintenance in a relaxed environment led by queer mechanics and volunteers. It takes place on the fourth Wednesday of every month at the Bike Kitchen on UBC's campus. Bring your own bike and fix them with our tools, come with questions and ask away, or learn by watching other folks work on their bikes. Beginners are always welcome. This event is entirely free to attend and there will be free pizza. For more information, visit bikecoop.ca. to give more voice to local women artists and musicians. Mixtapes is a Vancouver-based biannual mixtape featuring women-identified musicians and sound artists from the Pacific Northwest. The spring 2018 edition will be coming out on May 10th with all proceeds going to the downtown Eastside Women's Shelter. Women-identified artists are invited to send their submissions to btchtapes at gmail.com. The release fundraiser will be held on May 10th at the Redgate Review Stage, featuring artists selected for this edition of the cassette. Just lay there like cold granite stone. Wake up, we're too close to be alone. That there is a song called Wake Up by Merle Haggard from his album The Way I Am. Now, um, I don't know if this became clear when I was uh, interviewing Shirley Gnome or beforehand, but I'm a... Uh, I've I've got some odd interests, and the thing about Fool for Love is that it appeals to sort of small fascination I have with uh, the Bakersfield sound, country and western music. And I uh, I happen to think that artists artists like Merle Haggard, artists like Buck Owens, very influential. Um, whatever you may think of them personally is uh, certainly up for debate. I mean, Merle Haggard wrote some. The guy wrote I don't know how many songs. I so I read over a thousand somewhere. I don't know if that's numerically possible, but he, uh, like, one of those songs was I'm a White Boy, which is exactly as sensitive as it sounds. But on the whole, he made some great contributions to music. I bring this up because the original script of Fool for Love by Sam Shepard has this song play at the beginning, specifically from this album. And Shepard, so Haggard died in 2016. He was 89 years old. The man who wrote Misery and Gin nearly broke 90, and that's pretty amazing in and of itself. Sam Shepard died last year uh, at the age of 73. And when he died, he had accomplished so much in life that every obituary I read for him just sounds like a laundry list of things that, you know, one of those things where I guess not really so much with age because Shepard really hit his stride, I think, when he was past 30. But, you know, when you read about College Humor did a good video about this, about reading about guys like Usain Bolt or Mary Shelley and their accomplishments at a certain age or or Mozart, you know, Um and I'm not necessarily saying that Mozart and Sam Shepard are keeping company, although that'd be an entertaining situation. But you could very easily link Sam Shepard one degree of separation 
away from Patti Smith, Jessica Lange. He was um, involved with both of them, married to Jessica Lange for 20 years. Um, he was son-in-law of Johnny Dark uh, from his first marriage to Olan Jones. Uh, he, chore- he did a tour with Bob Dylan, co-wrote a song with him, and co-wrote one of his films, one of the movies Bob Dylan was in, which... Honestly, that's kind of an uphill battle in and of itself because Dylan, like Prince, cannot act. Uh, and then you ha- also have his connection to Merle Haggard, who he did know personally. Uh, and he also played Chuck Yeager in All the Right Stuff. That might be how you know him. Uh, and he got taught to fly, I believe, by Chuck Yeager. So already, before you get to his work, this man's pretty awesome. But then you get to his body of work. And Sam Shepard's body of work is... So amazingly impressive. This man has contributed to music. Like, the weirdest things, too. Like, he showed up in weird things. I mean, he was in a Dolly... You want to see him in a movie opposite Dolly Parton? You can. You want to see him play Chuck Yeager? You can. You want to see him play Butch Cassidy? You can. Actually, those things might all be closer related than I think. But then you also have... You know, he played banjo on Patti Smith's recording of Smells Like Teen Spirit, because that's a thing. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's correct. I hope it is. It's not going to make any more sense if it is, but that's true. Um, and like, he was, and of course, he was a playwright, and he wrote a lot of plays. He wrote some interesting, made some brilliant contributions. I mean, if you're an Ed Harris fan, there's Buried Child, uh, which Ed Harris starred in. And a lot of Sam Shepard's plays, they go different ways when it comes to the actual delivery of the material, but the commonality is usually this extremely dark subject matter combined with uh, not necessarily absurd. It's either a flat, straight-up absurd or just slightly screwball take on it. Like, there's some legitimately hilarious moments. And this can certainly be said of the shop theater's production of Fool for Love. The principal force behind this, by the way, is uh, Leslie Brownlee, who is the producer and also stars as May. Um, now, Fool for Love is a small play with one setting uh, and four characters. There is May and Eddie, who are uh, who are lovers. They're sort of meeting up in this low-rent motel on the Mojave Desert where May lives. And in the corner of this hotel, at the table, sits the old man. That's all, that's all he's called. And he interacts with Eddie and May, but outside the story, if you will. It's a little odd, but it does make sense towards the end. And there's one more character, and that's Martin, who's this sort of he's a straight man and he's a straight man in the comedic sense, although also in the literal sense, uh, who shows up to go on a date with May and finds himself in a little over his head. Suffice to say, Eddie and May have a history, a decade and a half long history since high school. Uh, and it comes around towards the middle of the play, although you can probably pick up on this a little earlier that, um, actually before I spoil it, I just want to say, uh, if you want to do justice to the memory of Sam Shepard, please go see this. The people who who made it really get the the sort of rhythms that Shepard was going for, and they do sort of understand the value of performing this, this especially this piece. They they really wanted to do it. Apparently, Miss Brownlee was right on that, on the rights after Mr. Shepard passed. So, yeah, go check it out. It's a shop theater. It'll be running for uh, about another week, and that's at thirty thirty East Broadway. Yeah, check them out. Okay, uh, spoiler. So the spoiler here is that the old man is Eddie's father and May's father. Yes, they are related. They're half-siblings because uh, he had two families. This guy is still probably in the upper echelon of Shepard's father figures. Uh, and kind of like Dodge and Buried Child, he, they seem to be cut from the same mold. They're both drunk. They're both pretty ineffectual. They're both like – they're both characters who kind of get overridden – in their own story, Shepard really liked the collapse of the nuclear family. And uh, what better way to do that than old-fashioned incest, am I right? Uh, partial incest, if you will. Yeah, it's still still not good. Still not terrific. Uh, but they were aware of this. Basically, they became aware of this, but they kept on going anyway because, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's weird. Uh, but the thing about Fool for Love that is probably most impressive uh, to me watching this, because Fool for Love, I think, was written in the late 80s. It, it's a play that feels, it does not feel dated at all, and that's maybe, they actually do leave out the Haggard song, at least in the version I saw beforehand, and I think that might be to keep it less dated, because I do understand the song does fit. It fits the setting, particularly, and it creates a bit of, like, it's not dissonant to the theme, but it does appear so originally. Like it does fit the setting a lot, um, and 
I get the impression that without it, though, there's a little bit more universality. Because the setting, yes, but the way they talk, it it's, there's a little Southern in it. And I do want to say this. Um, uh, Brownlee and um, Alex Rose, who play Eddie, their Southern accents do falter a little bit, but they're uh, generally fairly consistent uh, throughout. So that's not really um, a huge issue. Uh, and if I'm going to be honest, like a lot of the... Uh, Eddie, uh, Alex Rose's Eddie is also uh, very good. He's playing basically a literal cowboy, which is an archetype that Sam Shepard both wrote about and kind of personally filled. And uh, if I got to say, like, I, I got to say that it does work. Like he and, um, he and, uh, um, that's Martin, that's Mike Gill, um, play, uh, have most of the comedic lines in their interplay with each other. Because Martin clearly is not, terribly on the ball so Eddie kind of talks circles around him and it's interesting to see how that comes about because Shepard really did have an ear for dialogue he really did have an ear for these interesting pieces of dialogue and like there were there are um there's ways to look at this as sort of like a remix of other one room one relationship plays that he did well three-way relationship sort of plays he did one of which was after he left his wife for patty smith uh he wrote a play that she would star in called i think it's it's cowboy heart i think um is it called cowboy hearts cowboy something cowboy tongue cowboy mouth that's it uh and uh it's I, that's probably this is probably a spiritual successor to that in some way uh actually if you want to talk about my four sams all of them sort of made their trauma uh, into something in the way of art. Like Samuel Johnson was obsessed with language and religion, and he, well, he made a lot of brilliant work based on his loquaciousness. Uh, Samuel Beckett, as well as Sam Fuller for that matter, both of them lived through the horrors of war, and that informed their work a great deal, um, with Beckett's also being informed by personal depression and Fuller's being informed by his experiences with civilian culture after the war he was very good at pointing out these sort of systematic problems and with Sam Shepard I think his major concern was the fall of the nuclear family sort of the implosion of that and this is very much a play about that and um, again Buried Child is probably his most powerful example of that but it's also a longer play and it's also uh, I'd say harder to sit through. This play is honestly, I'd say, as far as introductions to Sham Shepard go, you could do a lot worse. It's made by people who love the material and who clearly have an affinity for it. So see it while you can. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. Also, if you want to see a play, I just kind of got to end the show with this because we, I really, I wanted to see this because uh, it's by our friends over at Pacific, but we couldn't quite slate it in. Uh, an almost homely picture by Heather McDonald was playing there until March third. And that's um, that's about basically this uh, this well it's a Pacific so they have this interesting way of looking at religion and in this case it's sort of about communing with God versus seeing the uh, personal uh, instance there agency there so yeah check that out and uh, I guess we'll see you around uh, I'm Jake Clark and this is the Arts Report cheers. Every day, I ain't got time to sit and have a drink. Working every day, man, it gets me down. My boots go on, my back it starts to hurt. As the days go on, my thoughts float on by, and I contemplate a better way to be. What am I? Take my 
Let it go, let it go, let it all go.